Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. We are delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70. As you know by now, our signature is featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are leading lives that illustrate inspiring ways for women of all ages to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. This 30-minute conversation with our guest is not scripted or rehearsed, although we will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. We are just thrilled today to bring you Stephanie Kutzen, who is 74 years almost. Stephanie, you have so much to offer us. You are founder and director of Employee Consultation Services, a human resources firm that specializes in occupational health programs. You focus on supporting law enforcement agencies, substance abuse, behavioral addictions, and critical incident response planning. You are an adjunct professor at several universities where you teach graduate courses in drug and alcohol abuse and crisis intervention. The themes that we're going to explore with you today are communications, planning ahead, and how aging is affecting you at all levels. So welcome to our show, Stephanie. Thank you, and I welcome this opportunity. It makes it a very joyous day for me to be with you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. So we want to start by asking, how did you arrive at this work and in law enforcement and all? It's, it's so interesting that we need to know more. All right. I'd like just to share how I originally found myself interested in social work as a profession because all my background experience and degrees are all in social work. So I'd like to take you back to the beginning for a minute. 13 years old, 1958, home economics class, field trip to the local state hospital. I was so taken talking to the mental patients that I failed to realize that everybody had left and I was locked in. Oh. And but I was very comfortable. And from there, I realized through all the vocational testing that uh, the whole field of social services was for me. And the question you asked about law enforcement, I had been in my career almost 35 years before I entered counseling. Really? Enforcement. Yes. This was in keeping with what we're talking about, a new opportunity, a change, and a risk. Interesting. Very interesting. And so tell us more about, did you, did you start by opening your own company or did you work for people? Yes. My, my professional history came about after finishing a master's degree. The field of occupational social work, the delivery of social services in the workplace came about just in time for me to look into. I grew up in a family business when social workers, and there were very few of us, were interested in the workplace, I sought out opportunities. There were very few. People didn't understand what's a social worker doing in a company. Uh, but I persevered. 
I built a business around the delivery of social services in the workplace where the employer pays for count, brief counseling. And it was a good fit for me because I, I've always identified with brief work with people to help them identify the problem, come up with some alternate solutions, and either counsel them or refer them on, which is the model that is done in the workplace. You know, Stephanie, I'm curious about your work with women. Are there particular issues, patterns that you see in uh, counseling, working with women in terms of services they need or problems that present? Yes, there are, Catherine. There are. My first work with women uh, was primarily devoted to alcoholism and addiction. Because for the years that I, in the 80s and 90s, because uh, addictions were a hidden disorder, not only by women and their families, but by management in the workplace, there was a lot of enabling, um, there was a great deal of suffering. So that was my first, you know, experience working with women to help them understand the disorder. And I, too, was learning at that time the effects of substance abuse and behavioral addictions on women because it is unique. There are very unique, unique physical, physiological, and psychological family issues associated with that. The next realm that I entered uh, is, is... Before you move on, Stephanie, can you, yes. can you tell us a little bit more about what you just said? Uh, what's unique about the women and, and you know, about being a woman in addiction? All right. First, the first thing that's unique are the physiological effects. Generally, women are smaller than, than our male counterparts. We have less water in our bodies to dilute alcohol. Therefore, a woman can have less to drink mm -hmm. or drug and will not be able to dilute it. So we're affected more profoundly. Mm -hmm. Second of all, there uh, are differences in um, uh, the, as women age and our uh, chemicals change in our body, we, we have more risks such as reduction of estrogen. As that goes down, the uh, ability to metabolize substances is lessens. So that has always been a phenomenon that needed to be you know, discussed because there has been, there was so little discussion of the effects on women other than it was shame. Mm -hmm. And that's the third issue that I'd like to bring up in, in terms of the social emotional. So it's much more of a hidden disorder. I tend to use the word disorder rather than disease or any other type of uh, term. Uh, but the social, emotional, family issues needed special attention, Catherine. They, they needed special attention, or I should say Catherine and Gail. Uh, so you, understanding the uniqueness of the addictions with women and in the workplace regarding their performance was another dimension. And what were some of the ways that you addressed these with them? Particularly with women? Uh-huh. Well. I typically the work that I've always the patterns that I use is a major what we call a biopsychosocial assessment mm -hmm. to find out where people are, you know, from a health standpoint, 
the, the life distressors they have, you know, family history, because so many people that I've worked with over the years, particularly women, don't always understand that they, they may have a genetic risk because they are children of and then adult children of in families where substances or, or behavioral addictions were present. And I help them understand that they have a genetic risk, they might have modeled that, and they became involved at the, at the physiological level. And something else is very pertinent to, in, in this field with women is they often, if they don't understand the, the predisposition, if the factors are in place, they will often connect out of emotional comfort with someone that grew up with addiction. And that's, that's a pertinent issue that I've helped women look at. And some women are in uh, certainly um, uh, we call uh, codependent, which means they depend on the alcoholic addict to, you know, to, to define their life. Or they are maybe involved in abusive, you know, relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pointing that out has become critical and, a, and an ethical responsibility for me with women, as it is with all human beings. But it, it seems to me that you are such a compassionate individual. At least that's how I've known you for Thank all you. the years that I know you. And and I'm just wondering in this work that you do and have done for so long now, is there an aspect of burnout? You know, I'm very much aware of compassion fatigue, and you know, you're right. I'm, I'm well over my 50th year as a social worker. And early on, I had tremendous uh, mentors who were wise enough to warn myself and others in classes that our field is primary you know, target for, for the burnout. And so early on, I learned from successful, particularly successful women professors, you know, take care of yourself. Yeah. That was one element. The second element is I grew up with a wonderful, um, with wonderful parents. And I want to point out that as far as modeling, my mother was very much involved in self-care. She was a woman of you know, born in 1916, but came to this world with uh, uh, a sense of pride and take care of yourself. And my father later on would say things. I have one sister, two girls, and our father would say, girls, you've got to take care of yourselves. So Stephanie, what are some ways that you do that? My own self-care consists of keep moving. I keep moving physically, emotionally, mentally. And I'd like to give you some examples. I mentioned the physical moving. Um, I have, based on where I am in my life cycle, and I do want to point out the importance of self-care and life cycle. I've had uh, numerous uh, exercise, you know, different types of ways to work on my physical health, which has typically been, is equally involved in dealing with distress that I have to carry from others and my own life. 
but I've had to learn through the life cycle and I am very much a proponent of, of, of women being aware of where they are in the life cycle so their expectations are realistic. I can no longer uh, jog and run. My feet gave out. I had to make an adaptation to that. Uh, I Later in life, in the last uh, five years, I've not been able to enjoy uh, sports that require me to have peripheral vision because of some eye problems. You know, I've had to adjust. And how I've done that in terms of self-care is uh, what I advise others is to know where you are in your life cycle. You know, at 74, there are changes. And I need to be realistic. Also, losses, little more emotional issues, grandchildren growing up and growing away, a loss because of my closeness. So finding other, other things. And if I can give you one more example, uh, when I, again, part of the life cycle, I chose to uh, live on my own. I was married for many years, but I, I've never, I never was solely responsible for myself. And I chose to do that. But it was a tough time. And at the same time that was going on, I made a decision because I was uh, preparing for my first grandchild that I had a lonely, it was lonely, you know, without a partner, I was getting used to it. So I wrote a book, which I could never imagine myself. I didn't know about that. <laughs> and that was, yes, the name of the book is called uh, Grandparenting Tales from the Crib, When Your Children Become Parents. <laughs> and that filled a void. And the reason that was I was experiencing older children in their 30s who were learning to become parents through the internet. <laughs> and I found a lot of it very humorous, you know, like the list they, they put together and how I would give uh, my granddaughter a bottle. And, you know, very funny stories. And, it, and I would write them down and I would save them because I knew that I... I wanted to do something which would fill a gap in my life. <laughs> is, that, is that book available? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's on Amazon. I've sold it for years. And, um, but it's not about your grandchildren. It's about your children. When they... I missed the second part of the title. I have Grandparenting uh, Tales, from, Tales the from the Crib When Your Children Become Parents. I love it. Okay, and sensibly, it wasn't just my funny stories, such as my son advised me to be careful of the drain to avoid flood when warming the bottles. <laughs> but my son built a web website for me, and I collected stories of other people that I think exceeded my humor. That's great. That is great. How did you collect those stories? I'm, I'm deviating here. Uh, my son developed a website, and I reached out to thousands of people and then i had to gain permission to get them published so it's kind of a a chicken soup for the soul book mm -hmm. and that again filled a gap when i i left a partnership to go off on my own mm -hmm. which is part of my story really is to look at each life stage and say if you can can't always project 
but be prepared to look at your physical challenges, your strengths, your emotional issues, you know, your relationship issues, friendships, support, you know, and be, be prepared, not just let things happen onto you. When you and I talked, we, we, uh, you talked a lot about communication. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'd like, I'd like to hear more from you about how that affects, how that makes you think and work and how it affects your life. But tell me more about what you meant regarding communication. Theoretically, and that's how I learned about communication through courses and, and, and working. Theoretically, there, we all have blocks based on our background and we're communicating with others. We have life experience, but we come with filters. And problems occur in communication when two or more people have different filters, different life experience, different, you know, uh, families of origin, different religions, belief systems. And often we're not as good a listeners with others and, and we think we're communicating, but the, the experts say 80% of communication is listening. And that's one factor that I have tried to practice myself and help others practice because if you don't listen and then ask for correction, you're bound to have communication and conflict. And it's not often spoken about that way, but communication, and it can be learned. Is that part of what you teach when you are uh, working with either clients or teaching students? I do, uh, particularly with, with clients, because there are often people in conflict. You know, they only see their side mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they haven't asked for clarification. And that is an important element in really top-of-the-line communication. So if I hear both of you ask me a question, I'm going to do active listening to be really good at communication. Gail, Catherine, what I heard you say, am I clear about what you want to know? Mm-hmm. That builds good communication. That makes so much sense. It really does. And yeah, that, that's terrific. I, it's, you're Thank so you. multifaceted. You, you you fascinate me, Stephanie. You really thank you, thank you. Well, I think that uh, I had good grounding with parents who believed that if you could, they contributed to a self esteem. And so often in my work, I I think there are two things where people would like to be greater than they are in the sense of how they see themselves. They were not given the they were not believed that they had efficacy they could make things happen you know and they they built they couldn't build self-esteem and they grew up with shame i was one of the fortunate Uh, my sister and i were of the fortunate that you know we were told we were somebody even um for instance my sister is a very gifted um uh, actress and singer Uh, (laughs) i'm forbidden by my children and grandchildren. I, I don't sing. I don't. <laughs> but my parents found that I did have other talents. So I remember, you know, so they had a knack. And when I see people that were not given a sense of confidence from the basic caregivers and nurturers, 
that's that's something I do have to work on with people. If, if, if they'll receive it, you know, I can't force anybody, you know, to do that. You know, Stephanie, you you talked about the importance of plan of planning, anticipating, seeing yourself realistically in whatever as phase of the life cycle that you might be in. And I'm I'm wondering, are there aspects about aging, or as you look ahead, that you have any ambivalence about, or that are sort of questions for you? It's a great great question, and 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 I'm right there. I'm right there. As as mentioned, I'm 74. I am a professor, and I am facing a very ambivalent stage in my in my career because of the aging process. And time marches on in terms of technology. Um, I was diagnosed, you know, with an eye disorder, glaucoma, which limits uh, vision, mm-hmm. uh, and how that is bringing me to you know deal with ambivalence. And I'm so glad you brought up ambivalence because that's another tremendous life challenge for people to work on is that the unch- I, I'm not I'm working on where to go from here and examples include I am not able to, to safely drive because of my peripheral vision even though I have aids in my car it's still an issue I travel a great deal you know I do a counseling program for a major law enforcement agency and I'm required to drive. I teach. I require to go to universities. I am at risk, and things are changing. So I have to look at that. Also, in the ambivalence comes, do I move into the new technology? My courses are often uh, taught, uh, uh, well, they will be taught more often online. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a dual ambivalence for me. I'm not comfortable you know, presenting, facilitating, coaching people online because the courses are not designed for that. They're just, you know, they're not, you're not in front of and engaging with clients, uh, with uh, students. Um, very ambivalent about that. And it is an aging issue at many levels. Do you think you'll move ahead with that? No, no. Already I have faced the limitation. And as we speak, uh, two things have happened as a result that I have to, you know, live out, you know, what I'm saying. I have decided that I will not do online courses. It's not me because I think that my engagement with students is, you know, hopefully seen as part of the success. That if, if I can be with them and support them and be creative and, and they teach me gives them an opportunity. So I have declined at one university. I've also had a course uh, taken away from me Mm. because I am required. I worked uh, for years doing a course uh, where social work interns, at least 18 a semester, you know, were in a class with me to discuss, you know, how they were learning in, in their internships. And I was required twice a semester to go to Mm -hmm. their placements. I can't do the driving anymore. And the school cannot see, make an exception for me. And I, it truly was painful for me that there was no way around it until the university came to me, the School of Social Work, and said, okay, we're going to give you another opportunity, and that's to do supervision, which requires no driving. 
I'll just meet with students. Oh, good. But on the other hand, the ambivalence, the disturbing issue of the aging process with this is I need to, I'm self-sufficient, I need more work because I'm not teaching. So I've come up with a strategy, which is what I'd like people to, to work on. Yes, please share it. Yeah, my strategy is uh, that I am able to, with my credentials, uh, do supervision, clinical supervision, or a variety of types of supervision for uh, social workers who have finished their master's and are preparing for the licensure exam. And they are required to have so many hours of supervision. However, many agencies do not, they cannot provide the hours in, in a thorough you know, way to get these people ready. So I'm about to put you know, out some literature to present myself uh, based on my long career um, to be available for individuals and small groups to provide this supervision which incorporate my limitations. So I think, I don't think we've mentioned yet that you have a doctorate and you, yes, you, uh, you have a license, you're a licensed social worker. So you are, you have the credentials, both the experience and the credentials certifications to be able to do that kind of supervision. That's right. And that's why I'm able to teach at the graduate level in uh, universities. That was one of the re the reasons that I I went I went on to get a PhD because when I entered the field of providing social work in in the workplace, um, there weren't there were there were a handful of us. So I wanted to teach, and addictions was very important to me mm -hmm. because at least ten percent of people in the, of, of all workforces have that or our, our family members are affected. So that graduate degree meant uh, opened up a great number of opportunities for me. It seems to me that a lot of women would, would simply throw up their hands and say, well, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to retreat into my world and that's it. Uh, and, you know, discontinue the work that they've loved and, and all because they say to themselves, I just, I can't do it anymore. What advice do you have as we close here to for women listening that might help them change their perspective on this particular issue? I would suggest that women begin to address and investigate their ambivalence, meaning, you know, perhaps I'd like I'd like to continue, but on the other hand, the factors are that lead me not to do anything. And so alternatives are not presented because they haven't thought through that it may not be the same, much like I said about my changing one of my, you know, job responsibilities. So dealing with ambivalence, and it's a very active process. And working, working through, where are you in your sense of self? Are you still seeing yourself vital? Are there things you could do to revitalize? Yeah, that's, that's great. That's really great. Another thing that I suggest is getting support, not taking risks, you know, without good judgment. And that means using support systems and key advisors, um, ex, you know, really exploring something, whether it be volunteer, what, whatever, 
And my, I think the coup de grace for me is something that um, I learned along, along the way, is living by choice and not by chance. <laughs> it's going to be a quote on our website. Yes. Okay, because I have learned through my experience, many people are, it's unfortunate, but are led to be followers because they, they observe that and are not feeling confident enough to, to have a center that's worth reaching for, they believe, so they rely on other people. That statement, having a center that's worth reaching, reaching for. for. Yes. That is very, and I, I really work with people around that because those are different kinds of selves. There are different kinds of selves. There's the, you know, there's the, the mirror self. The mirror is just parroting what other people want us to be or do. The chooser, <laughs> the chooser really is my advice if work on that. It doesn't come necessarily easily to do that but get support and you can you can work through your ambivalence on your own or with some advisors or support thank you so much stephanie it's it's really a pleasure to oh, have you as yeah. our guest my pleasure i hope that there that, that what we shared will be meaningful absolutely for sure i think you've had you have a really provocative and insightful way of highlighting what we one of the overall themes of our whole podcast. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you graciously for this opportunity. <laughs> so I welcome. Please join us every week for a new episode of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We are creating a community of women of all ages who share provocative perspectives on many different aspects of aging. We believe that we can better hear our own stories when we listen to and learn from other women. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com. <laughs>